0: You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas have returned home from their first missionary journey, have shared with the church all the wonderful things that God has done. When we come into chapter 15, The church is now 20 years old. The church was birthed in Acts chapter 2. About 10 years into it, we came into Acts chapter 11, where uh, we would see the first Gentiles saved under uh, God using Peter there in the house of Cornelius. But here we are 20 years later. And as we've seen in this first missionary journey, there was a lot of opportunity and there was a lot of opposition. In chapter 15 we're going to see some more of that opposition and it's going to come by way of some um, legalists that are going to come to the church in Antioch up there in Syria where Paul and Barnabas have just returned and been hanging out and sharing uh, the stories and beginning to minister once again and these legalists are going to come in and they're going to really basically say, um, we got a problem here with the apostles and what they're teaching. Um, we believe that it's really, really important for people to follow some of the outward observances of the Mosaic Law in order for them to be truly saved. And that's going to challenge Paul and Barnabas. It's going to challenge um, a lot of the, the, the Gentiles that are there that have been saved by simply putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And now they're hearing, wow, we got to keep the law and whatnot. Paul and Barnabas are going to have to defend their faith. It's going to lead to um, a very important church meeting that's going to take place in Jerusalem. And in that meeting, with all of the, the heads of the church present, whatever remaining disciples were there, they're going to decide the doctrinal issue of what must a person do in order to be saved. And if you've come from a religious background or you're sitting here right now and you don't know the answer to that question, this is a great chapter to walk through in order to truly understand your biblical position on what it means to be saved. What what has God done and what should your, your part in that be? So verse one, certain men came down from Judea and they taught their brethren again, unless you are circumcised. According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, if you were a Gentile there in the church, and you thought again that you were saved because you had heard the gospel message, someone came, Paul, Barnabas, whoever, came and told you about Jesus, that he died on the cross for you. And that by a measure of God's grace, because God loved you, he did that. And if you want to be saved, all you have to do is, is put your faith in him. Believe this. Cry out to him. Put your faith in him. Ask him to become your Lord and Savior. And and if they said that, they were telling you, this is something God does. This is based on the finished, complete work of the cross. And you've done that. Now, it's not just a theory that someone told you, and now it's a theory that's in your head. Their lives have been transformed. How many of you guys know what I talk about? Transformation, you're like, yeah, I, I remember that word, and I know what it's like for for me to be changed, right? So what would it be like for someone to come to you and say, you know, this whole thing about you putting your faith in Jesus and you being, like, saved, no, 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 that's not true. Now, if you were a baby Christian, you might go, oh, man, what did I miss out on? If you were a converted Jew and you were hearing these things, you were like, that's so my past. Some of you might even hear this and go, man, this reminds me of some of the history in my own life, maybe the church I was raised in. And and they really put an emphasis on works-based salvation. These guys were basically saying, yes, the cross is important. It's an important part of the deal. But in order for your salvation to be made complete, there is some work that you must do. You must Fulfill the physical duties of the law. So they were attempting to mix the law with grace. And This was serious. Remember again, the, the, the books of the Bible that we have that really help us understand grace. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians, um, the book of Hebrews. Those weren't written yet. If these guys were right, then Paul and Barnabas should have been teaching the Gentiles how to live like good Jews in order to be saved. But like the good shepherds that they were, they knew their God, they walked with their God, and they stood up and they rallied to the defense of these people in the church and they began to debate these legalists. They had a great conviction about their doctrine. They had seen the drastic effects of grace unfold upon their own life and upon the life of of countless others, especially on that, that previous year on that missionary journey. There was no way they were going to let this legalistic teaching derail the work of God that had taken root as a result of their preaching the gospel of grace, salvation in Christ alone. And so after disputing with these legalists, it was determined here that that Paul and Barnabas should meet with the leaders in in the Jerusalem church, the home base, to kind of settle this issue. So verse 3, being sent on their way, they're heading to Jerusalem. They pass by Phoenicia and Samaria. And what are they doing as they're traveling? They're describing the conversion of the Gentiles and they cause great joy to all of the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem. They finally arrived there at the Jerusalem church, which was the, the home base of the church then. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. But notice, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So, as they leave antioch and they they travel back down south south towards jerusalem they're they're traveling and it just says that this is what was on their mind they were sharing with people along the way how god had converted gentiles it's important to understand because this is the whole you know kind of the defense of their doctrine who jesus is absolutely we can talk about him and we can give you case in point evidence to his resurrection and the claims that he made and the work that he did. But then personally, as we went out and proclaimed the message that he commissioned us to proclaim, we saw lives get saved. And particularly, we saw Gentiles, who were not keeping the laws, the idea, converted. That's what they, they did. And so they would, they would have told him about what it was like to go to Antioch and, and, and how they showed up and all these Hellenist were saved. They would have talked about when they went to Cyprus and the governor of, of, of Cyprus was saved. Then over to Asia Minor and Galatia where the, the Gentiles had heard the message and they, they, they begged that we would come back the next week. And we came back, the whole city was there and all kinds of them were saved. They would have talked about Iconium where they shared the gospel there and many Jews and Greeks believed. They would have talked about the challenges that they had in Iconium, that, that as they were sharing, there were many unbelieving Jews that came, and, and, and remember, this is, this is in the Jerusalem church now, they're saying this, many unbelieving Jews came to Iconium, and they poisoned the mind of Gentiles and rulers of the city, and they determined to stone us there. But here we go, remember that, that's, that statement we said to Southern California or California Christians last week? They stay. One amen this time. They stayed. We had like 15 or 16 last week. I guess those other 14 or 15 left. But eventually, eventually, there was a violent attempt made, and they, they would leave. Next, they would go to Lister. They were telling them all about this story, how, again, the lame man, they would have said, this lame guy just hurt us. You know, we were, we were just, Paul was talking. And the next thing you know, the Lord just did this crazy miracle through Paul, and The people thought we were these like Greek gods, you know, Zeus and and Hermes, and they began to sacrifice to us. And we're like, no, 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 no. We tore our clothes. We were so upset about that. And we began to tell them about our God, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, who loves them, has been patient towards them, the God who reveals himself to all man through creation. But it didn't sink in. They continued to pursue us as these false gods. Next thing we know, these, these Jews from Antioch, In Iconium, they show up, and they persuaded the multitudes to stone Paul, and they did, and they drug him outside of the city. And we went out to check out his body. We couldn't believe it. One eye opened, and the next, and he stood up, and we headed for Derby. Just walking through what we've been studying. That's what they would have been saying as they would have been traveling towards Jerusalem. But finally, when they get to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the the elders. And, And I like how it says... They report, they acknowledge all of the things that God had done through them. What a moving moment that must have been. But then you have these, these Pharisees, a sect of the Pharisees who believed. They rose up. The, the Pharisees believed in the supernatural. They, unlike the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection, the Pharisees actually believed in the resurrection. So their, their hearts were at least open to the idea that Jesus could have rose from the dead. Many of the Pharisees would have been around the temple when Jesus yielded up his spirit and there was that earthquake. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And the the veil of the the temple torn in two. Many of them would have been like, like shaken by that to begin to at least recognize who this man was, that they were like, put him on a cross. And three days later, they would see him walking around. They would hear about all of the the stories about people seeing him raised from the dead. But that was a clear statement when the veil tore in the eyes of Judaism. It was a clear statement that everyone now has access to God. These guys are coming and going, hold on, hold on. Let's stitch that veil back up. We want to adhere everyone to the law of Moses. Again, it took a while for converted Jews to change their mindset. These Pharisees who believed, listen, were Pharisees that were converted. These were Pharisees that 20 years now the church has been birthed, they're, they're 20 years later. These are Pharisees that had somewhere along the line believed. They believed in Jesus. You would say, if you asked them, Are you a Christian? Yeah. They grew up in homes and neighborhoods and schools, though, that were immersed in mosaic laws and traditions. Every one of these guys would have been circumcised on the eighth day. Their father would have been circumcised on the eighth day. Their grandfather, they would have circumcised their young, their young sons on the eighth day. They would have been bar mitzvahed at 12 years old. They would have spent their teens and their early 20s devoted to the law and becoming a Pharisee. They would have had mentors and rabbis that would have been schooling them and tutoring them every single day with that course and with that path in mind. There was a day when they would receive their own dignified robes that garnered the respect of family and friends. And everyone through the community, as they walked through the community, they were revered as they walked through the community as a Pharisee. But there would come a day, or like in the, the life of Paul the Apostle, where all of that just became not so significant because they began to open their heart and their eyes and their mind to the significance of who Jesus was. And they would have been written off by the community by accepting Christ and saying, we believe he's the Messiah. Their families would have even held funerals for them and treated them as they were dead. They've already went through all of this But there was still part of the traditions and the mindsets of their upbringing that God was still working out of them. Though Christians, it would take a time to bring themselves to give away centuries of distinctives that had set their people apart from the world. So at this point in their lives, they felt they needed to put those distinctives and those traditions That were rooted in the law on others. But the future of the church and the doctrine of salvation was at stake. If the leadership of the church, if Paul and Barnabas and Peter and John and James, if they would have caved into this, there would soon have been a Christian doctrine of salvation by way of circumcision there would have been the first church of circumcision. That's just how weird we get with this stuff. Whenever a group says, unless you belong to our group or participate in our ceremonies or keep our rules, you're not going to be able to be saved. They're adding to the gospel. It's no longer good news. And we need to be careful of that and not buy into that. There was a writer by the name of Linsky, and I have his quote. He says, to add anything to Christ as being necessary to salvation, say circumcision or any other human work of kind, is to deny that Christ is the complete Savior. It's to put something human on par with Christ. And that is always fatal. A bridge to heaven that is built of 99 one-hundredths of Christ and even only one one hundredth of anything human breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. Even if Christ be thought as carrying us ninety-nine or nine hundred ninety-nine miles of the way, and something merely human be required for the last mile, this would leave us hanging in the air with heaven being still far away. End quote. So the apostles and the elders of verse six come together to consider this matter, and when they had There had been much dispute. Peter is the first one in the Jerusalem council here to rise up. What's he say? Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by the mouth of the Gentiles they should should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart and acknowledges them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter brings up four ministries that God performed on behalf of the gentiles. Number 1, he's like God 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 called me. God called me to to like use my mouth. First to open the door of faith to the Jews and gentiles in Acts chapter 2. There at Pentecost. Next to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 then to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Number two, God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit to bear witness that they truly were saved. Remember there in Acts chapter 11 when Peter finally gets to the house of Cornelius, God had spoke to him by way of a vision and basically dealt with his prejudice. For 10 years, he would not even talk with a Gentile, minister to a Gentile, going to a Gentile's house, but the Lord gave him a vision and broke that apart and then at the same time said there's, there's someone you've got to go to in Caesarea and he's waiting for you and, and, and eventually he got to the house of Cornelius which was a Gentile and he had his Gentile friends and relatives there at his house. Peter walks in and is like, shares the gospel and he has some of his Jewish friends with them the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, remember, heard the gospel along with him, his household, and his friends, and were converted, and we knew they were converted because the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues. So Peter's like, look it, it's not just, don't just take my word for it. God is in this. This is all part of God's plan. The Holy Spirit was poured upon Gentiles, evidencing the fact that they were saved. I've seen that. And God removed the prejudice in my heart. God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. I was prejudiced just like you guys. But God dealt with that. When God called me, he dealt with that. When he sent me, I personally witnessed God is not prejudice. His salvation is for all. And aren't we glad about that, by the way? And then fourthly, he says, I personally witnessed the fact that God had purified their hearts. I saw these Gentiles, they were forgiven, man. I saw the effects of God's forgiveness mark their lives. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke, in verse 10, on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? but we believe that through the grace of the lord jesus christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they what was his conclusion the law cannot save and if the law can't save what are we to gain by putting the weight of the law on people something's we nor our fathers could even bear So based on what I've seen, salvation is by grace alone. It's only possible through the grace of Jesus Christ. Only through him accepting his gracious gift of salvation. And so unable to really contradict that, the multitude kept silent. And so next, Paul and Barnabas in verse 12 began to speak. And it just summarizes here what they would have been saying, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So Luke doesn't give us the whole account because he just gave us the whole account. They would have told them what they had seen over the last year on their first missionary journey. They would have recited all of that and they would have verified what Peter had said by relating the signs and wonders that God had done through them on that missionary journey, among the Gentiles. So after they had spoke, again, everybody is silent. And James now, James now answers, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. James, when James would say, listen to me, at this point in church history, this is the half-brother of Jesus who he and his other siblings did not believe that their brother was the Messiah until after the resurrection. He was radically changed by that. This is James who will write the Epistle James. This is James who church history would label as James the Devout. We talked about him and we opened up the book of James. We'll get back to the book of James in 2024 or something. But he was, remember, he was a man of prayer. He was like a real devout guy. He had like callous knees from all the praying that he did. And so when James spoke, he spoke with great authority. He had great credibility. And he's like, listen to me. And everybody went, oh, James is talking. And he begins by saying, Peter hit the nail on the head when he said that salvation among the Gentiles was all part of God's plan. God's plan of salvation has included the gentiles all along like peter said god has been saving gentiles by grace alone for years now and then he points to the prophets he he backs up what he's saying with scripture the Old Testament, guys, you know the Old Testament foretold these things. The prophets spoke about these things. And he case in points a passage out of Amos. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 to prove it. And he says, and I quote, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who does all these things things. He's like, you know what it says there. After this, after this time of God working with the Gentiles, he goes, it talked about that. And it even talks about like after that, there's a time that God will be working with the Gentiles. And after that, God would return again and rebuild the temple I will rebuild its ruins and I will will set it up. And this brings us to that one topic of the time of the Gentiles. What is the time of the Gentiles? Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 verse 24 that Jerusalem would be trodden down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Most scholars believe the time of the Gentiles basically... Is a, is a period of time that began in 606 B.C. with the Babylonian captivity. A time in which the Jews fell into the Gentiles' hands. And it continues on into the present age then and will continue 2,000 years ago until the end of the age when the temple will be rebuilt. So most scholars believe, and I don't want to get too much into prophecy right now. There's a lot of things happening in the world right now. We might just jump into some of that stuff. But just follow me. This is very, very important. What The point that's being made in this council is this. God said that Gentiles are part of his plan of redemption. All the way through, from that time, from a time, beginning way, way back in the past, guys. Currently, the point is, in our day, All the way into the future, which would even talk about our day. Right now, for you guys that aren't aware, the the, the Temple Mount right now has no temple on it. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. It has never been rebuilt since then. We can go into our history of all of the different occupants of the Temple Mount and whatnot. Right now, it is owned by Israel, but it is under Arab occupation but one day that temple will be restored. It will be rebuilt just like it says here. And, and what, what he's saying is there's a time that God is working within the Gentiles even into that period. Do you understand that point? Even in that period. And that temple will be rebuilt by the way. Amen. Amen. It's really like important. I've I, I got to be careful here. I got, I'm a limited time today. But it will be rebuilt. We know that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, It talks about the return of Jesus. It talks about a world leader, the man of perdition, an antichrist, that is going to be ruling and reigning over the one, the entire world, with one world government, one world military, one world monetary system, and one world religious system. You are watching every prop be set before you right now. Don't go there, Lance. But there will be a time when the antichrist walks into that temple. The temple has to be there in order for him to walk into that and say that he is God. If you want to know more about that, you can look at our 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 studies online. Daniel chapter 9 as well deals with all of that. But the idea is that all of mankind would seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And this has been known, he says in verse 18, to God from eternity are all his works. God has known about this plan for the Gentiles and the Jews from the beginning. The work of God in redeeming Gentiles is no surprise to God. It's always been part of his plan. So James, his point is like the prophets say that the Gentiles will be in the kingdom without becoming Jewish proselytes. Therefore, there is no need to make people Jews in order for them to be saved. Great defense of salvation by grace apart from the works of the law. 19. Therefore, I judge that we should no longer trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from, and, and, and from blood. So, this is James, like this is the head of the church, one of the heads of the church going, This is what I believe we should do. In light of all of this evidence that we have, biblical evidence and and practical evidence from people that are seeing Gentiles saved, we should not trouble Gentiles who are turning to God through grace alone and say, you're not saved unless you keep the law. Keeping the law and observing the rituals are not required for salvation. And with this, these legalists, even the Christian Pharisees that were trying to do this, and these others, these legalists, would be forbidden to trouble the Gentiles by teaching otherwise. So a doctrinal decision has just been made about salvation. They concluded that Jew and Gentile alike are sinners before God and saved only by placing their faith in his son. That's good news, amen? But they also make some practical decisions here. They wanted to make sure that Jews would not trouble the Gentiles, but they also wanted to make sure that Gentiles would not trouble the Jews because you have a blending of cultures. With Jews and Gentiles coming together in the church, they would be blending these you know, two cultures, and consideration was given here. So in this letter, he just says, look, the, 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 the Gentiles are going to have to abstain from things contaminated by idols. It refers to food that would be offered to pagan gods and such. It would be for selling in their meat markets and whatnot. Idolatry was blasphemy to the Jews. The Old Testament was filled with warnings against it. So the, they avoided any manifestation of that in the church, including eat. A meat that would be offered to idols. Really be thinking through this. We don't want none of that in our, in our midst because we don't want to be offending some in our midst. Again, remember, most of the churches here, a lot of them would still be meeting in homes. If the Gentiles ate meat that was offered to idols, it could be seen as, like, unclean to the Jews and it could cause some serious issues. Secondly, fornication. That describes sexual sin in general. Why is that important to deal with here? Because illicit sex was was an integral part of pagan Gentile worship. There were temple priestesses who were nothing more than prostitutes. Sexual practices were commonly associated with with, uh, worship of pagan gods. So it's a warning that Gentiles were to do nothing offensive to God's law or Jewish sensibilities regarding sexual purity. Abstaining from what is strangled And from blood, again, that involved the the dietary regulations. You know, some blood would remain in the body of an animal if it was strangled. If if it, it was wrong to the Jew, they would only eat the kosher meat, properly bled out meat. Paul would have to deal with this in great detail in Romans chapter 14 and 15. And he would just basically have to say this. Listen, there's some strong in the faith, there's some weak in the faith. You might have some liberties. You might be free to eat whatever kind of meat you want, but, but there might be some that it just really offends them and be considering the weaker in the faith with your liberties. Paul would go on to say whether it's eating meat or drinking wine or whatever it is, whatever, if, if whatever I did was to offend someone and maybe stumble them in their faith, I'm going to forego that. That's a sign of maturity. So these are the things that were written down. It pleased, in verse 22, the apostles and elders with the whole church to then send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, um, Judas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and that they wrote a letter in the apostles and the elders, uh, by them the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. And so... The council's decision needed to be communicated back to the church in Antioch, where all of this hubbub began, the center of really Gentile Christianity. And uh, 23, we have the letter opening up by identifying the church leaders, the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Um, The greeting here, they, they, they then state the issue Um, that they're addressing since in verse 24, we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we have, excuse me, to whom we gave no such commandment. So again, that was not a command from the church or from Paul and Barnabas for sure. Then they gave the church, Like church's commendation of the men that were sent with them, it seemed good to us, you know. As we were assembled there to send chosen men with Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord's sake, I should say so. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by the word of the mouth. So, Paul and Barnabas are part of the church in Antioch, and they're they're challenged; they're being questioned. They refute these guys. And they're like, well, then go to the mother church. Go to Jerusalem and take it up with, like, the big guys there, the Peters and the the James and whatnot. And so they do go. And so the church in Jerusalem wisely sends back some from Jerusalem. So it's not like Paul and Barnabas just coming back, here's the letter, and, and kind of making the report their report. They were like, no, 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 no. The church in Jerusalem's like, we sent some credible people with them so you understand we're all behind this letter. We're all behind the decision, this massive decision that was made. And then I like this. They recognized that the counsel that was brought forth on behalf of the Gentiles was like what they, what they determined was from the Holy Spirit himself. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Look, we didn't just sit around and come up with some doctrinal idea. We turned to the word of God. We looked at the evidence or the work of God. And as we began to to pull all of that together, we realized this was God's doing. Remember again, we said the book of Acts isn't just The account of the apostles, it's the account of the Holy Spirit working through these men. And when we look at our salvation, don't ever look at it as, well, some men sat around and came up with the idea and this is now what we believe. No, this is the plan of God outlined in the word of God validated by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Very important. Then they answer the doctrinal question about how men can be saved, specifically dealing with the law and how it doesn't play a role in one's salvation by saying, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Then they close with how they could avoid rifts in the fellowship, you know, the abstaining from things offered, idols from blood and things strangled and from sexual immorality If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, notice what happens in Antioch. They rejoiced over its encouragement. The gospel is always good news to those who understand it. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets... So then you send leaders. They sent leaders that had the gift of prophecy. And they exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So as they arrived to Antioch, no doubt they would have arrived to a very anxious group, excited to hear from them, and, and they would begin to give them just, this is the letter, and, and the response is that they, they rejoiced. The confirmation that salvation was through grace alone lifted this tremendous burden off of all of them. The letter also brought encouragement, we see here. They no longer needed to fear that their salvation was not genuine. Legalism produces fear. It produces guilt. It produces pride. Well, grace alone brings comfort and hope and encouragement. And then there was confirmation. Judas and Silas here, this gift of prophecy, they encouraged and strengthened the brethren with, you know, just a a lengthy message, I'm sure, from the Lord. The Lord spoke through these guides, words of encouragement that would have just encouraged all of these regarding salvation. And then, in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas, it was just a continuation of God's work. They, they stayed there. They, in Antioch, they were teaching and they were preaching with many others. And, and I'm sure they just felt so emboldened to preach all that much more, the gospel of grace. And then the Lord adds that many others you know, joining them and proclaiming the liberating truth of the gospel of grace as well. So all of these people got emboldened and were excited. And then we come to the close of this chapter where there's this division over John Mark. We, we talked about this in the past, but we'll just reflect upon it. And then I'll have some closing comments and we'll pray. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back. And now he's talking about let's have a second missionary journey. And on that journey, we'll visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John Mark, or John called Mark, John Mark, his nephew. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And notice what it says. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Barnabas took Mark, sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Maybe there was a need to talk about that right then. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Every family has some level of dysfunction. Can I hear an amen? amen? Calvary La Habra, we have some level of dysfunction. Welcome to Calvary La Habra. Amen. We have had our spats. We have had our differences. We have like come to times where hearts are heavy. People have taken sides. And it's grievous to watch. And I believe it grieves the heart of God. But although we might have a great disagreement with someone and go, I believe they're saved. We'll pick up the whole relationship thing when we get to heaven. Because I'm done with you down here on earth. How many of you are glad that we serve a God that doesn't do that? Amen, Amen, right? He just doesn't do that. And so God looks at the relationships that we've allowed to become fractured and he's never okay with it. He's never not wanting to reconcile that relationship. He's never not wanting to be at the center of that relationship and make that relationship what he designed it to be. Now that's on us because God, by, they, they were commended to the grace By a measure of God's grace, he can do do that. If by a measure of God's grace, we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to anybody. Because all he's done is taken what separates us from God, and he's, he's nailed it to the cross because we surrendered it. And when we do that in human relationships, he does the same thing. So what has kept us apart is no longer there, and we are united. It's a beautiful thing. Healing came. and Paul wrote Colossians, Mark had been a changed man and Paul would ask for him. In Philemon, Paul names him among his fellow workers. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, 12 years after the first missionary journey, Paul tells Timothy to pick Mark up and bring him with you for he is useful to me. That's God. Problems and difficulties in the church are opportunities for God to continue working in the church. God looks at those problems, those difficulties, and he's like, ah, oh, I'd like to really use that to grow you, to mature you. If the Jerusalem council did not get this right, I would be wearing a really funny robe. (laughs) You would be sitting apart from your spouse. There would be a wall right down the middle. We would spend every single Saturday studying in great detail the Torah, memorizing it. For three hours every Saturday. If you didn't, I would have the right to really lay the law on you. Your kids would be in here with us for three hours every week. And I am not by any way, shape, or form trying to put a negative vibe on modern day synagogues. I'm just telling you where it goes. Jesus would not be mentioned. If he was, he was just a historical figure of the past that made some claims that didn't come true. And we would still be looking for the Messiah. And the Messiah that we'd be looking for would be a great political liberator. That's what we'd be looking for. If you read who the Antichrist is, he fits the description of what the Orthodox Jews are looking for today in the coming of the Messiah. It's fascinating. But something happened. We do have the book of Romans. We have the book of Hebrews. We have the book of Galatians. And going over the book of Galatians with the men yesterday and this last week, there's a section, because we're talking about grace, there's a section in there that talks about how When we are born into the family of God, we are sons, not slaves. We're sons. And and as such, a son, as a little boy, would have stewards and tutors. They would have someone that would help them along life's path. They would need that to understand what's right and wrong, how to do right, and how to stay right. Okay? They would need that. We needed that. But that son, the moment that he was born, follow me here, the moment you were born again, the moment that son was born, he was an heir. The inheritance of dad and grandpa, all of that was his the moment that he was born. He didn't know what he had, but it was his. And there would be a time where the law had its place, like a tutor, like a... Just, you know, directing and guiding us, but pointing us to the one that would make us a son. In the Jewish community, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I was able to go to a bar mitzvah there. It's amazing. For the, 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 for the, the boys, it's a bar mitzvah. For the girls, it's a bat, B-A-T, bat mitzvah. At, at, at 13 for the boys, at 12 for the girls. Mitzvah means of the command. It's a way of a, of a father standing up in front of his congregation. His boy's now 13, and his boy for the first time is going to read from the law. And in a ceremonial sense, it's a way of this dad saying he's come into maturity. It's a rite of passage. He's now responsible between him and God. And it's a beautiful thing. And so there's this ceremony that they have. In the Roman world, they had the same kind of ceremonies. In in different cultures, we have the rite of passage ceremonies. If you were in a a Latin community, you had the quinceañera. If you were in the Roman community, it was fascinating. We were talking about this. When you were 17, as a a Roman boy, you wore a a robe, but you had a red band around it. And at the age of 17, you brought all of your toys toys that you compiled as a little boy, and you brought them with all of your other buddies to the middle of the city, and you burned them to your pagan gods. It was a rite of passage. And then they took that robe with the red ribbon around it and they gave you a white robe. And from that point on, listen, you outwardly demonstrated to everybody that you were an adult, that you had grown up. You know what? What God wants us to understand out of the book of Galatians is that you you are not a slave, you're a son. What evidences your life that you have grown up? What evidence is the fact that that you now are that son, the mature enough son? Your view of Abba. I now get it. I now know who he is. I now know I'm a child of God. You now come to the realization that it's relational. It's not law-based. Keep the rules and regulations like the tutor said, like the steward said. No, 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 no. I don't need that anymore. What shows that you're mature enough to really understand that? You've entered into a relationship with God. There's a look to that now. The rite of passage was Jesus Christ. You accepted him into your life and you became a child of God. And check this out. There's all kinds of evidences to the fact that we are saved. Our love for the brethren is one of the big, the big ones. But in Romans chapter 14, it talks about the kingdom of God. You're not just born in the family of God, you're born of the kingdom of God. Right? We're heirs of that kingdom. We're joint heirs with Christ. Talk about being an heir. You could could be an heir of Bill Gates. No one wants to be a... You know what I'm saying. Someone very with like a lot of monetary stuff down here. You can have that. I want to be the heir of the one who's part of a kingdom that will never end. Now, when I begin to understand that, it's not just, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, I am that because I am a child of God. So I got to understand who he is. He's a benevolent God. He's a loving God. He accepts me as I am. He's grafted me into his family by the the work that his son has accomplished on the cross. I get that now. I understand that now. I'm a child of God. I'm an heir of Christ. Heir of the Father. joint heir of Christ. But in Romans chapter 14, it talks about the kingdom. What is the fruit of the kingdom? Don't go into gold, streets of gold and all of that. Right now, what is the evidence in your life that you have went through that rite of passage, you're truly born again, you're a child of God, you're an heir of God, a joint heir of Christ, and that you are a beneficiary of the kingdom of God right now. The kingdom is in you, you're part of the kingdom. What is that evidence? You know what it says? Righteousness, joy, and peace. Now, I guarantee you, most of you did not walk into this room thinking that identity all morning long. but you just got a whole heart filled of that from me because all week I've been thinking about this, all month, and I realize I'm talking to people these days who have some identity issues. And our identity is formed and shaped by, I have a zero, so I gotta stop, by by like where we spend our time Our political views begin to form our identity. And we forget. We forget who we are. And so peace that should mark you right now. (sighs) Joy. Evidencing sonship. You're free. It's not what you do. It's who you are. And it's time that we rest in that. Amen. Amen. We have no more minutes, so let's stand. We sing a song. This is, this is our story. This is our song. Now we've got a little more clarity on our story. And may we sing this out. May the Lord bless you this week. May you live out sonship and daughtership. May you live out the doctrine of salvation boldly, faithfully. May the Spirit affirm in you the fact that you are a child of God. And may that significance outweigh anything this world would ever try and put on you. Father, may it be so in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.